Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. In in a really well-known book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, he shared something that I really took on in in our culture. He shared that it usually takes 10,000 hours of practice to master a field. So as an example, he used the example of the Beatles. So contrary to common belief, the Beatles didn't arrive in America having played a couple concerts and just explode in in the scene uh, without without really knowing that many people didn't know the background story that the Beatles began in, in Liverpool as a high school band. Look at these young folk right there, acne faced and all. And after a while in Liverpool, they decided, we're going to move to Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, where they started playing in clubs. And over a two-year period, they played seven days a week, eight hours per night in clubs. So that by 1964, when they exploded on the international scene, they had already played 1,200 concerts together, these little young people. They had gone through the ups and downs of playing to a crowd that are trying to drown you out by their conversations. They had learned how to practice together and work on their craft over and over and over again. And without many people knowing it, they, they showed up on, in America having played more concerts than most experienced bands have ever played. It wasn't just merely chance or luck or even skill. It was a craft that they had built conflict of ups and downs. They had they learned and they grew through that. And so we live in a day and age where we love to watch TV shows like American Idol or The Voice, where it seems like people go from singing in their shower to singing in front of America with a record deal looming. Uh, and we, but we don't really experience that in our own life. You know, we even hear stories of small startup companies that start in bootstrapping themselves into uh, uh, their, their garage and all of a sudden exploding into to, to wealth and to power, opening up the New York stock, stock Exchange with the bell. You know, we don't might often think about the fact that it took years of hard work and failures and conflict to be able to be uh, good at what they do. And so I think that's why this past week we loved the story of Tiger Woods. Like this picture of Tiger Woods. Look at the crowds. Uh, I don't think that they would have been cheering as much if Tiger Woods didn't go from the top of the world down all the way back down to the bottom and slowly to etch his way back up. Maybe a changed person, a transformed person. Helen Keller said this on this subject. She said, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. It's only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Only through trial and suffering where this can happen. That's what we're talking about today. How God, the grand author of all of life, uses conflict and struggles and challenges in our life to develop you and me to be the people that we were created to be. And in my mind, there's no story that demonstrates this more than the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph in in the Old Testament, it's in Genesis. It actually takes up almost a quarter of the book of Genesis, this one person's story. In the story of Joseph, his story begins with great favor, not only with God, but also his father. And he seemed like he was destined for great down Genesis 37. 
Let's start there. So Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel, his father Israel, a person, not a nation, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. This is a technicolor colored robe, right? Made popular by, uh, you know, Broadway musicals. And here, Claire, uh, Clay Aiken, right there. <laughs> also American Idol, right? Right? Connecting the dots. Uh, that's probably what Joseph looked like, by the way. Um, pale-faced and red-haired. Uh, probably not. In verse 4, after he had his ornate robe, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. I don't think this is parenting 101. Like, this is my favorite, and this is super awkward for me because my brother's here and it's really obvious that I, I was the favored child, so this is so uncomfortable. I'm just going to get it out there. Uh, it's probably not parenting 101 to have a favored child. It, it disrupts the, the chemistry within the family. In verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said, listen to this dream. Sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaves rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brother said, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, being a youngest child, this is not a smart thing to go to your older siblings. I had a dream. Call me crazy, but you're going to worship me. You're going to bow down to me. It's cool. I will be a very uh, generous dictator over you. It's probably not the smartest move, but don't worry. Joseph got the point. He learned from his mistake. Verse 9, then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When, his father, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Like many young people, Joseph was filled with dreams, and I think God was preparing Joseph to go, hey, um, it's not that you're special, but you are chosen. I have a unique purpose for your life. And it's clear, though, as young as Joseph is seeming in this part of the story, he's not ready to play that role. He had to mature. He had to grow. So what does the author do to grow us and mature us in the stories of our life? Well, conflict is going to come. A bunch of ups and downs. And so Joseph had to mature. And as much as we want to grow and develop in comfort and ease, God will use conflict to shape us. And if you know Joseph, this is Joseph's life story, just like the life story that you wrote for yourself this past week in the journal. It's a roller coaster of ups and downs. It's a snapshot of his story. His brothers faked his death and sold him into slavery. He was then purchased by Potiphar, a powerful man in Egypt, as a slave. And he, but there in Potiphar's house, he rose in favor, and he was actually put in charge of his household. But then he was wrongfully accused of abuse and was then thrown into jail. But in jail, he starts to use his gift of interpreting dreams. Maybe this was implanted in his mind when he was growing up. He goes, ah, maybe, it's, maybe I should start learning to interpret my dreams and be able to speak truth and not just, just tell everyone what happened. So he started interpreting dreams there in prison. And after correctly interpreting dreams, 
He expected to be released, but then he was forgotten in prison. Eventually, Pharaoh, Pharaoh in Egypt, was plagued with dreams that no one could interpret. And Joseph was then remembered by one of the people he interpreted the dreams in prison. And he was remembered, and Joseph was called on to Pharaoh to be, help interpret his dreams. Then Joseph then warns Pharaoh, hey, this is what your dreams mean. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt. You're gonna, we're going to have a lot of provision. But then there's going to be seven years of famine. So what you need to do is to store up. Don't, don't, don't just use your excess. Store it up. Be frugal. So then the seven years of famine, uh, we can be provided for. And then through Joseph's gift of leadership, he was then put in charge, the second command of all of Egypt. I mean, the roller coaster. Being days before in prison, then all of a sudden one of the most powerful people in all the world in that time. And through Joseph we are led to believe that thousands and thousands of people were kept from dying. This roller coaster, ups and downs, great conflict. If you were Joseph, you would, you would hear the story and for all of us go, oh, great, all is well that ends well, right? But what if you spent most of your life rotting away in prison after having these dreams of grandeur? As much as we read this life story in a matter of like 30 seconds and go, oh, okay, cool, makes sense. Think about our own lives. How would we respond to that? Like the expectation of being used by God to do something great and then all of a sudden, boom, sold into slavery? Oh, again, okay, rising in power in Potiphar's house. Nope, in prison, forgotten. When that would squeeze you like a sponge, what would come out? I think for me, some really honest questions would. When I was being transported as a slave, hey God, where are you? <laughs> Excuse me? I don't remember this in the dream. And then when he's forgotten in prison, was that even real? What God spoke to me? Was that, did that, that promise really, was that real? And then a decade later, still there waiting and waiting and waiting. My temptation would have been like, all right, here's the story that you gave me, God. It's out the window. I'm going to take control now. Wouldn't that be just a very natural response for many of us? And I think what, one of the things that conf, the conflict is showing us uh, here in Joseph's story is how challenging and painful it is just to ride the, the slow ride of the ups and downs. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, by the way, that Joseph asked really hard questions of God. And I hope we're a church that we can have a safe place where we can ask really hard questions of God. We can ask those questions that it seems like we're given permission to ask in Psalms of, God, where are you? How is it that like the people who seem to be against you in this world are prospering and yet I'm suffering like I, I hope that we're a type of community where we can, we can bring our honesty to each other. We can bring our doubt and our frustration. But Joseph had the bitter gift of time. He had time to consider what God might be doing. And this masterpiece of God redeeming pain in the midst of his story. And isn't it that the case where sometimes in our lives, sometimes we're able to look backwards and some of the pain and the suffering that we experience can almost make sense. Not that it was okay, it happened, but God 
God is teaching me and forming in the midst of it. I think God was active in all of the story, but especially the downturns in Joseph's story. I wonder if some of the lessons that Joseph learned in the downward turns is how power and wealth come and go so quick. I wonder if Joseph learned the humility, the type of humility that wasn't displayed at the beginning of his story. I wonder if Joseph learned to be loyal and faithful to God in every circumstance. And probably the greatest lesson that Joseph learned was how to trust God, especially when it's hard, how to trust God. That's the deeper conflict beneath all of the conflicts that we're going to experience in this life. It's the conflict between trust and mistrust. Can I really depend on God? Would God really be faithful Can we learn to hold on to hope? I still think this is the case in our life. We're going to experience our own life stories and all the ups and downs that we are going through. The real question, the real conflict is, is God still with me? Is God still present? Can God, there's, is there any redemptive value in the suffering that I'm going through? Now back to Joseph's story. In a crazy turn of events, after the seven years of plenty came, and then now we're into the seven years of famine, a crazy turn of events, the surrounding nations were out of food, so they started coming to Egypt looking for food and provision. And one day, Joseph's brothers showed up. They had written Joseph so far out of the story that they didn't even recognize him when they were face to face. And what do they do? Well, they bowed down before their younger brother. The dream came true. And Joseph didn't rub their face in it. He didn't make it easy, but he didn't rub their face in it. And after some time, Joseph eventually reveals himself to his brothers. Genesis 45, 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all the antennas. So this is when his brothers are there with him, and he can't control himself anymore. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there is no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly. Notice this. This is an instructive, helpful tool for us how to be people of hope. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. I just want to pause real quick and, and just point out something really important for us to be people of hope is that we have to be honest. We have to be honest with our pain. We see Joseph wept so loudly that it was, the Egyptians in the other rooms could hear it. So one of the things that we are, we do with the sorrow that we are dealt is we don't sweep it under the rug. We don't paint on our Christian smile and just repeat the things that we've seen stitched on pillows in Christian bookstores. Like we, we are honest with our pain. We, we, we deal with it. Just because God is good doesn't mean it's not going to hurt really, really hard sometimes. No, we're honest. In verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were like, uh, that's what I think when I think, of, that's my translation of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Notice, he wasn't like dishonest. It's cool, you sold me. No, no. I'm the one you sold into slavery. 
And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. What grace! Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and there's going to be five more years. There are five more years where there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. You see that like maturity, you see that growth in Joseph, that what the type of growth that only happens in suffering and challenges and sorrow. He has a perspective that's not common, it's not ordinary. He was developed by a slow, slow, slow process of trust. Joseph learned to trust that God was at work. And later on, Joseph's father died, and, and the brothers expected that Joseph was just playing nice until his father was dead, and then his wrath was going to come. And, still, um, and, and so still they're conniving. The brothers are conniving. So they made up this story. They went to Joseph and said, hey, uh, our father's dying wish was that you would forgive us for real. Like for real forgive us. And then Genesis 50, 17, look at, look at Joseph's perspective. When their message had come to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. They expected to be repaid what, what they did to him, right? But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Notice again, honesty. It's not like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's all No, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. That's the transforming redemptive power. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph in this moment remembers that God is God. Am I in the place of God? No, I'm not the author of this story. God is. You meant it for harm, but God had a plan. He was going to redeem this pain and the evil that you did and somehow bring about good. We need to be really careful, I think, in this conversation not to assign God to every evil and tragic thing that happens in this world. I don't think that it's, it's right to say, to say, God, well, I guess God wanted me to have this traumatic experience in my life. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not the story that God writes. It's not, there's a lot of things in this world that are not God's design. It's not, I saw a stat a couple months ago, it's, it's not God's design that there's 70,000 kids who are being trafficked in Texas today. Not God's design. It's not God's design that you get that cancer one more time coming back in a ferocious way. It's not God's design for you to lose a child. It's not, there's so much in this, this past week for me, for whatever reason, there's a lot of pain around us. And it just made me think, man, the heart has not been designed to carry this kind of sorrow and pain. It's not God's design. So where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God? I believe that God is in the midst of every downturn in our story, showing that his power is not by shielding and protecting us from life, but showing that we in all things will never be alone. And that somehow God's editing in this story is that there can be good that comes from every evil. That evil and sorrow will not have the final say in our life. That there will be hope. 
There will be hope in God's redeeming conflict for some sort of good. And sometimes we might not see it. But we can hold on to hope for ultimate redemption. We hold on to hope. Believe that God was in the midst of Joseph's story, writing the whole story. God was uniquely present in all the downturns, all the, the moments of deep sorrow, that God was uniquely there. The reason why I believe this is because we have Jesus. God's ultimate redeeming power was seen in the life of Jesus, who demonstrated the extent of his transforming power in life and in death. That Jesus, he didn't choose to have a life of comfort and ease. Although he could have had control, he didn't live a life of control. Instead, he had a life of a roller coaster of conflict, of ups and downs. He was betrayed. He was deserted. He was forgotten. And though like he, Joseph was stripped of that coat, Jesus was stripped of a lot of things. But one of the things was the eternal delight from his Father. Upon the cross when Jesus said, My God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus identifying with the ultimate sorrow that we can ever experience in this world. Showing us showing us that a cross can be a place of life. A tomb is not the ending. It can be just the beginning. And in all things that God is with you. That's God's power. His transforming power. Is that whatever you're going through, Jesus, your Redeemer, is alongside of you and He won't let you go. He won't let you go. I know in my own life that God has been uniquely present in my own downturns, in my own story. And that's what we're going to be talking about in in our Vine groups this week and in your journals to think through the hard, hard thought of where has God been in every downturn? I know in my life the relationships that were really disappointing, God used it to to teach me compassion, a job opportunity that kind of just went up. The last moment, for me, it taught me to, to live with courage, for maybe be willing to take, some, take a risk. Stuttering as a child taught me to be quiet and to listen, that you don't have to talk to be a friend. And an unexpected death of a family member, way, way, way too young, taught me to make every single moment of my life count. And many, many failures of my own failures, I have learned that God's redemption is teach me what grace is. Never failing grace. And all these downturns, somehow God redeemed it to prepare me to play my role and to teach me more about my Savior. That's my story. Well, I'm just curious, what about you? What's the story that God's writing in your own life? How is God using the editing pen of sorrow to somehow bring about good? And some of us need to do the hard work of looking back. We need to do some hard work of looking back before we move forward. We have to look back sometimes. Not to say that it's going to be okay, that there's a rainbow in the rearview mirror. Sometimes we have pain that we're going to carry with us throughout all of life. But we have been given a future. We've been given a future and a way forward. That although there are challenges and ups and downs in our life, that God perhaps is making us into the person that we have been longed to be. And somehow, in the midst of our sorrows and challenges, God is uniquely there. Let's pray together. We're going to have some time, uh, just some prayer. And Matt, if you could turn, turn down the lights, if you would, please. 
we're going to have some just some, we're going to create some space here for us just to be honest with God. Again, if our church is going to be a place where we can be honest with the things in our life story, we, we want this to be a place too, even in our worship, to be honest with God. So maybe right now you're in the midst of a downturn and you're not sure exactly what God's doing, where God is. just want to encourage you to just to be honest with God. Maybe the issue of trust and mistrust right now is just too great for you. Just be honest with that. Or maybe you know someone's in the midst of that. You can lift them up too. And if that's you, just stay there. Just stay there and keep praying with God. Maybe other people, you just need to spend some time just looking back in your own life. You just prayerfully consider the episodes in your life that were great challenges. And maybe you can spend some time just asking God, God, where were you in the midst of that? How might you have redeemed that? How might you have brought some sort of goodness and beauty from ashes? Thank you, Jesus, that you are not calling us to do something that you have not experienced. But Jesus, you experience all of life, and that includes being betrayed, stripped, neglected, and even killed. Thank you, God, that we can know that in all things that you're with us, our Redeemer can bring about goodness. So I pray for my friends in this room today who are in the midst of a downturn. They're not sure how to respond. I pray, God, above everything else, they would just know simply that you're with them. And I pray for others in this room who haven't done the hard work of looking back. I pray, God, you'd give us courage to do so so that we can see your presence in all of our life story, but especially the downturns. Thank you, God, for transforming us, for making us new. Thank you, God, that you've given us reasons to worship you. Thank you that in life and death, we belong to you. We praise your name. We thank you for the safe place to be honest. And we pray this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.